Alan Crane Productions in association with Emergent Life Studio presents the Illinois State Collegiate Compendium, Academic Lectures in Business and Economics. This is Business Finance, FIL 190 for Spring Semester 2024. Today, Fundamentals of Business. This is actually chapter one. I'm catching up here, some of chapter one. But, and, uh, but before I do anything on tr- in terms of content on a given day, I open up uh, the lectures by saying, let's look at the numbers. And every day we do this. Now, some of you may be more informed about how to read uh, the stock markets and the bond markets and uh, commodity markets. Some of you aren't. But I bring you up to the speed. And I use the terminology, oftentimes the lingo of the field. In other words, as a practitioner in finance, having owned a penny stock house, having worked in the industry and provided consulting and having students, former students out there now, I sometimes use terminology or I give you insights that are not part of the normal flow. But understand that what I am doing in this course and what we do in finance at a university, uh, one of the ranked universities of the country, we are taking you down the path of finance that is for finance professionals not for day traders, not for necessarily for arbitragers, although we'll talk about those, speculators. These are the kinds of thinking patterns and uh, data collection uh, that we do when we are in charge of a lot of money. Now, obviously, no one in here, including me, has a lot of money, and when I say a lot, it used to be kind of funny to talk about a billion dollars, and now that, that ship has sailed. We're now in the trillions. But you'll be dealing with money either in corporate life, uh, uh, lots of money, or you will be dealing in a brokerage house environment or in the real estate industry where the numbers are large beyond imagination and your responsibilities are serious. You make a mistake in those, these businesses, it can be a lot of money that is lost. Another warning to you, the SEC is the federal body <coughs> that oversees securities law. It is an agency, and I'll give you this again, uh, one of the things you'll get to used to in my lectures is I say the same things over and over again from one lecture to the next, just laying on this knowledge and just beginning to use it commonly at first and then later giving you more uh, firmer definitions. But the SEC is the heavy duty uh, body. They set up, they set regulations, they set up regulations that are then promulgated to brokerage houses and to other industry participants. These are the thou shalt, the thou shalt not. In other words, an agency is an interpreter of laws. And then the agency is is responsible for seeing to it that those laws are turned into regulations that are doable by the uh, industry in which the regulations are set. However, there are a lot of overlapping agencies that watch us. Public is the SEC. You make a mistake, the SEC can take civil action against you. If you make big mistakes, they can refer for criminal action to the Department of Justice, the DOJ. That's one level. Then you have the states who, that have their own divisions of securities and other regulatory bodies of interest, and they can come after you as they have in my past. In matter of fact, there are some states that I still would not go to to this day because of trouble that I got into. And I'll tell you more about that in time. However, then there are the policing, self-policing organizations like the NASD, the National Association of Securities Dealers. 
They will watch over you, and they were the ones with whom I interacted the most over when I was doing uh, working in the uh, in the consulting industry. And then we have another body, FINRA, F-I-N-R-A. FINRA is overseeing us as well. They have a, they are proud of bragging about how many of these brokers and advisors that they crack down on and fine and get out of the business. Well, here's the reality of FINRA. FINRA will go after the little people and they will squash them by literally the thousands. But they will leave the giants alone. They won't even touch them. That's FINRA. FINRA and FINRA is really be careful because they are they're watching and they want feathers in their cap. I'm being honest with you about this. This is not the traditional text. FINRA is there to protect the, uh, the average investor from activities that are not in the average investor's good. Bullshit. They'll do that at the low level, but they will not do it at the high level. Just like the SEC is afraid at a certain level, even the SEC is not in the mood to get into a fight with some of the wor the heaviest and the dirtiest players in the in our business but that's the reality of it we behave responsible responsibly in our business we're not in it for ourselves we are agents of some larger entity generally speaking now we can play for our own hand hell i do all the time and sometimes i violate my own rules about what you should and should not do but when we get into that environment where we are managing a portfolio for some wealthy client, where we are in a corporation and we are managing cash flows, some of which will go to the pensions of everyday hardworking people, when we are in the real estate industry and our main job is not to make ourselves big wigs and fancy people, but to make sure that housing is moved to its best possible use, that means that we have to watch what we're doing and we have to think in a longer term framework. We're not trading to make a buck tomorrow. We're trading over a long period of time and I will show you a lot about that. If you, uh, in other words, buy and hold strategies are superior by the data year after year after year to these jump in, jump out, dance around like a chihuahua. No, you hold on and you don't get scared tell you a story about this from my own military uh, uh, experience many, many years ago. Our job is to hold our cool, stay frosty. Our other job is to make our enemies scatter, freak them out, make them panic. This goes clear back to the Roman legions, goes back to the 300 of Sparta. The commander would say, Spartans hold, or Legio hold, stand your ground, let them come to us, and we don't panic. If it's a down market, I don't care if it's a black swan. A black swan is a really, really bad day. You know, a bad day where people jump off buildings. Even in a black swan, you don't shit yourself. You just stand there and say, okay, it goes down, and it will come back up. That's the reality of it. During the 2008 catastrophe, the people who freaked out and ran, well, they were selling out after the prices had gone down. It took them an average of five to seven years to get back to where they were right before hell broke loose. The people who just hold, held on, wrote it down, wrote it back, two and a half years, they were back to where, they, where it had been. That's just reality, and that's the data. That's not an opinion. That's the hard data of it. Now, I sound like I'm getting a little harsh here, but I got to get you guys to the point where you are pros. Pros don't panic. P pros don't look for the quickie, the fast deal, the arbitrage, or some recommendation from some idiot talking head on the internet uh, in financial news network or some blog. You can think for yourselves, and I want to make sure you come out of my class able to look at these numbers that I'm going to pull up here 
and know for yourself what they are telling you. It's not that hard. There's an old rule back from my time in probability theory. You can either use simple statistics or statistics that need a PhD. If you're trying to play in the middle with self-designed weird stuff, you're wasting your time. Simple numbers can tell a story that will carry you on past this course. So without further ado, now I do apologize for using Yahoo Finance for these, but that's just the way it is. I mean, I can go into Standard Poor's Global Net Advantage, and I'm going to show you that. You should have been shown that in your Business 100 class, but I'm going to take you into Standard Poor's Global Net Advantage. But, or I want to take you into my own TD Ameritrade account, but I pulled that TD Ameritrade account up, and uh, my account number is there, and I can't figure out how to get rid of it. I've had some of their techs help me, but no, I'm not going to let you have a chance at my my account. Uh, uh, yeah, dream on. Well, there's not much in there now. I got my, um, just, you have to be honest about this. Yeah, sometimes I'm up really good. And there are other times when I am so poor, I am P-O, po, I can't afford the O-R. So I'm just po. And that's what's happened in a, a couple of times recently. So I'm down nasty. I was just straight up. I was I, in my, my fun money, fun, I was up to almost 12 grand. Right now I've got $600 in there. Boy, was that a nasty options play. Anyway, okay. Now, I'm going to talk to you about the numbers. Listen to the words that I use. Whether or not you know anything about this or not, I'm going to use terminology. We're going to look at the broad numbers. First of all, there are two kinds of numbers that are going to come up here. The ones that have a number after them, see like the Standard Poor's 500, the Dow 30, Russell 2000, those are just index portfolios. They're hypothetical portfolios. Well, we put together 500 ginormous companies and we track the portfolio day to day. Okay, that would tell you something. The Dow 30, that is... 30 of the giants of the earth. We used to call it, and you may even hear me slip once in a while, the Dow Industrials. And they're not industrials anymore. Uh, I think the, origi or the originators of the Dow 30 would turn over in their graves if they knew that Mickey Mouse was one of the Dow 30 now. But there you are. And then the Russell 2000. This is kind of a hodgepodge, and it's kind of hard to say, well, what does this mean? We're going to talk about that in this class. And, uh, you want to get a sense of different parts of the economy. The NASDAQ is a full-blown exchange. It's an actual exchange. It is an electronic exchange. It's been around forever. I mean, uh, I was using NASDAQ. Uh, uh, NASDAQ screens back in the 1980s and in my brokerage house we were using the NASD uh, electronic BBS for buying and selling doing trades and this was in the early 90s uh, but it's it's so it's purely electronic there's no floor no physical place it's just everywhere now another exchange would be the giant New York Stock Exchange <coughs> The NYSE. I mean, those are the big, big heavies that are on the NYSE. And other ones are out there, too. Uh, I keep bringing up the American Stock Exchange, the Amex, but it kind of doesn't exist anymore. But do know that exchanges are everywhere. And there are not just the national exchanges. There are regional exchanges, too, like the Philly X and others like that, where they... And they're limited in their region and in the scale of the companies on them, but they're out there. Now, all over the world, there are exchanges, and there are also index portfolios. Generally speaking, in Europe, they're not called exchanges. They're called bourses, B-O-U-R-S-E-S. -E well, the uh, London bourse or the Swiss bourse or something like that. It's an exchange. It's just that's their term for it. The Han, 
the, uh, the Tokyo Exchange, uh, the Hong Kong Exchange, and all of these. And uh, are, they're just all over the world, exchanges are, by country. Interestingly, um, and I teach in third world, uh, third world, second world countries. Boy, that could get me hanged in those countries. Second world countries, and even those have their own exchanges. I had this uh, experience with these representatives. They were delegates from, uh, that I taught finance to from uh, the Republic of Ghana, and they wanted me to, you know, go on our exchange. You've got to see this. We have a real exchange. And I thought, oh, that it surprises me. So I went on it. Yeah, there were like a handful of companies. Trading volume was a couple of hundred shares a day. So, you know, I was polite. I thought, yeah, this is great, man. Look at that one. It just traded 10 shares, that company did. So, you know, some of them aren't, you know, huge. But it's a place where buying and selling can happen. The whole name of the game for us is liquidity of the markets. Liquidity. And man, that word comes up all the time for us. Now understand, liquidity is the efficiency with which an asset can be converted to another asset. Liquidity is the efficiency with which an asset can be converted to another asset. Liquidity is the efficiency with which an asset can be converted to another asset. By the way, if I repeat a definition two or three times, guarantee you it's going to be on a quiz or the uh, or uh, an exam. Now you got to be careful because you go on Wikistupedia or Investopedia, they'll give you another definition. It sounds almost like mine, but it's incorrect. Now let me explain liquidity in terms of uh, markets. You need to have enough efficiency, <coughs> in other words, a low enough transactions cost that you can get trades done quickly, of these days almost instantaneously. In fact, early in the morning, one of the places where you can play markets a little bit, and I've been successful too, is in those first few minutes when the market opens, you see the liquidity building, and once in a while you'll see slight price defects because there's not enough liquidity to move orders from the buy-or-sell column that were pending in the overnight market out into the actual execution of the trade. So, it happens. Now, I'm using a lot of terminology here. Don't worry, I just keep talking about it over and over again until you get to the point where you can use the same terminology. But that liquidity is a very important thing. Our markets are so damn liquid, it's ridiculous though. The trading volume, let me show you something here real quick. Let's look at the S&P 500 index portfolio. The average volume on a given day is almost 4 billion shares. This is those 500 stocks. The total amount of trading in those stocks on an average day over the last 52 weeks has been almost 4 billion. Now, it's obviously going to be small now because the market's just ding-dinged about an hour, hour and a half ago, something like that. I don't know. But you can see that, that I mean, this is ludicrous kind of trading volume. And by the way, I'm, you, once in a while, you'll hear me use the term OBV, on balance volume. I'm throwing a lot at you here. Just get used to it. You'll, we just go keep going through this over and over again. But on balance volume, going back to the ancient times when we used paper and pencils and pens, we always had what's called an open order book. Every broker had it, where you would have open orders listed, the name, the trading symbol, whatever, and a number of shares, is it a buy or a sell, and all of that. And through the day, you would be filling in that open order book, line by line down as X trades came in, and then they were executed. And uh, then at the end of the day, those were aggregated, and you got the on balance volume for the day. The OBV, but there are other markets now, dark markets, where a lot of trading is happening too. 
So when I, you see that four, almost four billion, it's probably maybe about a billion more than that, half a billion to a billion more than that because of the dark market activity. This is illegal activity. It's just transactions that happen in the dark web and with uh, proprietary prop houses and all that kind of stuff. And so that's becoming somewhat noticeable now. Once in a while, now eventually, something that happens in the dark market, a trade, it will percolate back up into the open, vol open uh, volume, you know, when it's traded at some point later on. And so sometimes you'll have, where the hell did that come from? It would probably something that happened in the dark markets months ago, and now whoever got the order filled in the dark went, uh, went and came into the light to get rid of the order or something like that. But yeah, so it, this isn't the whole thing now. So you'll hear me say OBV, open uh, the uh, on balance volume, because that's the one we see. What's happening in the dark? I, you know, there are ways that I could see parts of it, but it's distributed and decentralized. It's DeFi, so I couldn't tell you how much is actually there on any given day. Not even a guess would probably be legit. But anyway, we'll take you back up to the front end here and get you into this. Okay, now, these are indexes and exchanges, okay? However, they aren't the whole world because the world is made up of commodities as well. There's a pretty one right there, crude oil. Crude oil is a world of its own and it affects us because eventually, whither goes the crude oil prices, so goes our gasoline prices. Now, this is just one benchmark. This is light sweet Brent, but there are literally dozens of uh, grades of oil. I did work in the oil and gas industry down in Texas a lot years ago, and I mean, what came out of the ground there was this what we call sour sludge, almost tar, stunk like the dead dinosaurs it came from. It was just awful. It wasn't worth nearly the barrel per barrel price of this light sweet stuff. And then there are grades in between, intermediates of all kinds, intermediate crews. And those all have their own prices. The crude that you see here is just a benchmark because usually the other ones follow the price of this. And this is the price per barrel. It is affected by supply and demand dynamics, but as is the truth of all finance, it is not based upon what happened yesterday. It's what is the case now and what we think it will be tomorrow and the days after tomorrow. So when I see the price of crude, see how it popped a little bit this morning? That, by the way, right there, what you see there is called a spark chart. Now, you can do, do these for yourself in Excel. They're kind of fun to do. Make a quick note. So you notice that crude had been sinking, and then something spooked the market a little bit, and then something really spooked the market, and it popped a little more. What spooked the market? I didn't check on what was going on today, to be honest with you, but it's probably something like, oh, yeah, we've got a little more activity in, among those combatants in the Middle East, and that's going to affect the price of oil. And if we piss off Iran too much, they're going to close the Strait of Hormuz and start putting landmines in there and firing sunburn and silkworm missiles at anything that comes through. That's a disruption of the supply chain. And so that should make the price of oil go up a little bit. I want you to start thinking in these terms, supply and demand, expectations of what's going to happen next. Not what happened yesterday, what's going to happen next. So, yeah, we got a little bit of an excitement there. It seems like the Ukrainian situation is pretty much in a stable uh, mood right now. There is oil shipped through the Black Sea, and of course that becomes a target for the combatants, Ukraine on one side and Russia on the other, although they've agreed not to shoot each other's uh, ships with commodities in it. But anyway, there you go. That's crude oil. It tends to like to play in bands. In other words, right now it's got a trading band from about 72 to 79, and it's going to work in there. Now, it's popped above that band, obviously, a couple of years ago. It skyrocketed up 125, something like that. 
but then it found its way back into this band right here. It went a little below that band at one point. So, oh, uh, the oil prices went up, so that means that gas prices are going to go up. Not necessarily and not right away. You also have to look at how much crude oil is in the reserve tanks, on the high seas, how much is made it to the refineries. You also have to ask what are the competitors and what are their supply conditions for that crude oil. Oil can be turned into gasoline, but it can also be turned into distillates like uh, diesel, kerosene, jet fuel. So if the diesel is way high in price, well, there's probably going to be an effort by the refineries to take some of that oil that would have been used to make gas and to use that to make uh, some of the uh, diesel. It's just the way it works. So it's a complex scenario. It's not something, understand this, and I think I've already said this a little bit. You are, you are learning and you are going to become more knowledgeable than easily 99% of the people in this country. It's your responsibility to know what's really going on. Let them have their bread and circuses. Let them have their conspiracy theories. Let them think whatever they will as long as they leave us alone and let us get the real work done of the big people. So there, uh, just a little uh, elitism there. And don't think that you're a common person. You're in this class, so you ain't no common person anymore. Gold. Gold is a metal. Gold is a little different from silver and copper because gold has this weird-ass cult around it. We call them the gold bugs. You should buy gold right now because the world is going to come to an end. Oh, quit it. Stop it. It's, so they sometimes have surges that spike the price of gold when they get together on some back channel on the Internet and start getting spooked by things. And then it settles back down after a while more likely you're going to get the picture of what the commodities are by, if you're interested in metals by looking at silver. silver. Notice how gold did not pattern silver. Now gold and silver are, gold is highly speculative. It has an underlying supply and demand. Gold for electronics, gold for cosmetic jewelry, that kind of stuff. But it is heavily affected by those loopies that kind of come in and run around and then run back out. Silver is not so likely to be affected by those random, bizarre things that happen. Uh, although once, uh, about a year ago, was it, some idiots on Reddit told everyone to buy silver and for some bizarre reason. So there was one of those unexpected and very rare odd behaviors of silver, but mostly silver is driven just like copper and titanium and all those by the supply and demand dynamics of the markets that are constituents for those metals. Now I'm going to go in next week and talk to you about currencies, how you think about them. One of the classes that I teach here is international finance. Currencies and international finance are actually fun. The math is not hard but you get to talk about geopolitics and geoeconomics and stuff like that. And so they can actually be kind of fun markets. Okay, now let me go over here. Bonds. This is a benchmark 10-year treasury, a benchmark. There are bond maturities of all kinds. You'll see that later in the course. And, but the, we use the 10-year treasury as a benchmark for where all bond prices are going. Now understand that what you're seeing there is not a price. It is a yield. The yield and the price are mathematically inversely related. They are inversely related. You'll see that, as I said, you'll see that later in the course. So when I see that the bond market has um, dropped, see that? Yields have gone down. That would mean that the price has gone up. There's buying activity. Demand is pushing to push prices up. Mathematically, that makes the yields go down. That's good news for us because as those yields go down, that is an indication that interest, interest rates in general are sliding, which will increase business activity.
So that's a kind of a good thing there. Yeah, apparently all these investors are buying bonds. A lot of investors are grabbing up bonds. Demand goes up, price goes up, yield goes down. One of those chains of logic we have to we have to rely on. You had your economics courses here, right? Yeah, okay. I used to teach economics. Uh, in a typical class, I, I'm assuming that you're probably a little sharper on remembering what supply and price and the demand and quantity demand and all that kind of stuff. But I'll still emphasize it over and over again in here just so that you uh, bake that into your thinking. You see, bonds are safer than stocks in general. That means that if you are worried about stock prices or companies and you know, the economy, you will move, you will sell stocks and buy bonds. You'll move away from the risk. We call that flight to quality. Flight to quality is the movement of, uh, is a large scale movement of investors' funds from riskier assets to safer assets. It is the large-scale movement of investors' funds from riskier assets to safer assets. Flight to quality. There's an old saying going back decades. From stocks to bonds, from bonds to gold, from gold to bullets. Let's hope that we don't get that, uh, that scared. But literally, you will see sometimes, you will see investors bailing out of stocks. You'll see stock prices going down and bond yields going down, which means bond prices are going up. The investors are selling their stocks, using the proceeds to buy bonds. But if it's really bad, well, hell, we're not even going, we're going to sell our stocks and our bonds. We're going to buy ourselves some gold because you can trade that even during the zombie apocalypse. And don't forget, zombie apocalypse, double tap, cardio, all of that. Some of you know what I meant, some of you don't. Okay, whatever. But, yeah, so look here, look. Okay. We see that the stocks are going up in price, and the bonds are going up in price. Well, that's good news. I mean, there's general, oh, buy some stocks, buy some bonds, make a nice balanced portfolio. Everyone's excited. Gold's going down. So everyone, no one's going for gold. That's a good sign when both of those markets are showing strength. Uh, because that means that investors are not in any kind of panic. They're just filling in their portfolios, balancing some stocks with some bonds and all that kind of stuff. That's a nice day. It's a good day. Now, before I go any further, let me make a point very clear here. See that, well, S&P 500 has gone up $7.97. $7.97. Well, you know what? We don't give a rat's ass about that. All that matters are percentages. All that matters are percentages in our business. We, oh, the Dow went up 700 points. Oh, big whoop-de-doo, who cares? How, what was the percentage gain? Let me explain. You buy a stock for $10 and it goes up $1. Mm -hmm. $10, uh, that's a 10%. Well, uh, you also bought a stock for $100 and it went up a dollar. Same amount. But, well, spank me Jesus. They are not the same. You see, percentages are all that matter to us. And it will drive people crazy sometimes when you just kind of ignore the prices. All that matters are the percentage changes from one minute to the next, from one day to the next, from one year to the next. Because we convert everything. Well, remember I told you about liquidation. We want everything in dollars. But then we want anything that's a change in percentages. Because the dollar amounts themselves really don't matter much. So uh, so keep that in mind. But here we see, before I go any further, you notice that the Dow 
at the ginormous end of the economy, and the NASDAQ, which is small, scrappy companies, small caps as we call them for the most part, they went up pretty good too. But there's that big, giant swath in the middle, the S&P 500, that's just peeing along at about 15, 16, 0.15, So apparently that big, heavy, 500 big companies of the world, and by the way, those 500 are about two-thirds of the entire world economy, which is kind of scary. That's the one you would look at if you wanted a world portfolio, which we'll talk about later. But it's not doing it's not doing as well. It's still up, and you see all of them up for the day. So we have a bull market today. And a bull market is a market going up. A bear market is a bear uh, market going down. The old joke is if it's going up and down, we call it a kangaroo market. But so uh, tomorrow I make, uh, or rather on Wednesday, I'll. Bring up the number, they'll say, is it a bull day or a bear day? And you'll say, well, it's a bull day. No, you say, bull, it's a bull day. You got to be positive about it. But it's, this one isn't a spectacular bull day. I mean, that's, I, I mean, I'm not going to say no to the money that I'm making here today, but it's not one of those big, big upswing days. But from minute to minute, notice how it was rolling upward at the start, you see all the spark charts were coming up. On the opening bell, there was buy pressure. The buy volume was uh, larger than the sell volume. So that was overall, so that was bringing up the prices. But then the bears came in and they started saying, eh, no, I'm not gonna let you do that today. And so you notice that they've all topped and they're dry, dry, drifting downward now. Nothing major going on here. This is just how it works. You can get into this thing where you just kind of stare at it from minute to minute because it begin, begins to have kind of a, a fascination all of its own. But keep in mind that greed is driving everyone. There is no charity in this. This is all objective. The heavies and the hard players they don't give a rat's ass about the political environment. Well, this politician said, or that politician. We don't care about that at all. We're looking at our expectations of the future at any given point in time. So if I am up there at that peak, well, that's a peak. We better run. How do you know that's the peak? You're running because you got some news that something bad was going to happen. Not something major bad. But that gave the bears the incentive to ride in, sell, and the bull said, okay, I'll sell. It happens from minute to minute, and it's from hour to hour. And that's what's driving this, not some spooky conspiracy theory. These are just the actions of a physical system driven by greed, pure and simple. <sighs> Oh, mother's work is never done here. I got to get down to the other part of the lecture here. But oh, let me show you something real quick here. Um, and no, I'm not going to do cryptocurrencies. You, if you think for one minute that I'm going to look at the crypto markets, you are wrong. Uh, but look here. These are just a couple. Notice these are indexes, but they are indexes from other exchanges. The Nikkei. That's 225 big stocks on the, Jap uh, on the Tokyo Exchange. It gives us a, a sort of a pulse of what's going on in the overall exchange itself. But the, those, that market was happening last night. They're all asleep now. While we were in bed, they were rolling. So if you are going to be a global player, a global warrior in the future, economies. you got to be a clocker. Some place is always awake and alive and rolling. Now as a sun, we were, it was nighttime here and that Nikkei was trading. They were yelling and chopping each other and screaming and all that kind of stuff. And then the sun set in Japan and it was rising across Europe 
and lighting up their exchanges, and then it lit up the London Exchange, the Financial Times uh, uh, Securities Exchange, uh, 100 stocks in on the London Exchange. And then they were alive and rolling. And then as the sun was going down, the east coast of the United States was waking up. And there was a, there's a little bit of an overlap between when the bell close the closing bell happens in London and when the opening bell happens in the United States. I think we're past it now. But you can see that that the FTSE, I am pretty sure that's that's done no, it's still awake. Do you see it? Look, see how the numbers are still changing? So they're still they're at the end of their day. They're about to say, jolly good, let's go have tea and crumpets or something like that. And then this comes up over here and we wake up to sausage gravy and five eggs, extra cholesterol on our side. And we are alive now. And they're, they're getting ready to close. They're near, see how they're really close to the end. But you see how these markets each have, it's, each market, has, each country, each exchange has its own players, but they all work on the same forward-leaning analysis. And so over there, Nikkei had a decent day, but notice that it started out up. But then it just kind of drifted a little bit up, but most of the real change happened right off the bat in, in uh, Tokyo. In London, you can see that it started out up, but then just like it happened here, oddly enough, the bears took over, drilled it, actually went to negative for the day, about a little after lunchtime in London. But then the bulls came back. They lost their, they're losing a little bit of their mojo here at the end. That could be some profit taking. You see, if you've made, if I've made money through a day, sometimes I will dump a little bit of my stock at the end take the profit and wait for what happens tomorrow. So sometimes you will see a little bit of a drop towards the end of a day as some of the players, uh, what we call skim the cream off their portfolio uh, and wait for what's going to be exciting for the next day. But whatever happened in London, then we come over here to the United States and the opening bell. However, make no mistake, these markets are not asleep when the bell, before the bell rings in the morning and after the bell rings to close at night. There is the aftermarket. These are buy and sell orders that are being put in after hours and they build pressure. Like if there are a lot of sell order or buy orders, let's say, overnight. And then there's the pre, the pre-market where more buy and sell orders are being put in before the bell rings. Those create pressures either for a price drop or a price rise. So those can actually cause some interesting things to happen. You know, at the beginning, you can see there on the Nikkei. Did you see how that thing started out up there in the green? That was uh, a lot more on balance buy orders and sell orders. And when the bell opened, that floodgate trade because the orders were there to clear off the open order book. Okay, so you get that too. And sometimes if you take one of my late classes, a matter of fact, you'll see that all the stock price activity is, uh, it's still changing, but it's, a, it's aftermarket activity where the price is changing, but it's not official until the next trading day opens. And then surprise, sometimes it's something big that happens. And that can be some cause some interesting things on liquidity in the first few minutes of after the bell opens. As those orders start getting executed, your liquidity can drain out if it's a lot of sell orders real fast, or it can suddenly the liquidity could go through the roof within seconds if it's a lot of uh, buy orders. Uh, that are suddenly being filled and that liquidity is flowing into the broker, brokerage house coffers. Had enough of that? I'll take you through a stock on Monday and we'll start looking at the nuts and bolts of financial, of basic investment analysis. It's not hard. You just have to remember what numbers tell you what things. But as <coughs> for the remainder of this class for today, I got to step back here a little bit. 
most of what I am going to tell you here and what's in the book, uh, you should have been taught in Business 100. In some cases, you didn't hear it, you're a new student. In other cases, they didn't even push it too hard on you. But in our world, we have to know these things. Let's see. You, sir, you are an entrepreneurial sort. You have decided that you want to make some money, a side hustle. So you buy yourself a lawnmower and a truck, and you go around and you mow lawns for rich people. Well, who do I make this check out to? It's you. You are that company. You are that company. That means, for one thing, that all of the money that you make after you pay bills is yours. There's no question about it. But so is all of the risk. You're going along mowing some rich person's house here in town, and you don't see their poodle. Oh, you give that animal a show dog trim. Mm -hmm. Well, they sue you. They can sue everything. They are suing you. They will take your mower. They will take your truck. And they will take, uh, as a matter of fact, they will shoot your dog, sell your Bible on Craigslist, and make your parents wear furries. They can do that. Because you are all at risk. You are a sole proprietor. You are a sole proprietor. You are all at risk. And when you die, the company dies. That's all there is to it. There's, there's nothing else about this. It's very simple. Simplest organizational form there is. And it has been happening by volume. Sole proprietorships are the largest... Um, category of businesses on earth. We're pretty sure, we know sole proprietorships go back far into the past to the Romans, the Greeks, the Egyptians. We have some reason to believe that we even saw pre-modern humans that were engaging in business from some of the evidence of uh, production activity happening on some of the Greek islands possibly Neanderthals were going there to make, uh, to get the uh, really nice flints and all that, and then they were taking them back, and we find those same flints from those islands out in the, all over the place, so they must have been doing some kind of entrepreneurial work. But that's the sole proprietorship. Now, understand that this puts you all at risk. As you know, I have my own company, I Emergent Light Studio. It began as a sole proprietorship many years ago. And it was called, at that time, it was um, Digital image, Images by Alan Crane. And then I, you can actually change the name so that you have a fictitious name. You're allowed to do that. In almost every state, you can file some forms and paperwork and wait a while, and you can actually have a usable alternate name. In my case, I just many years ago, I changed, I filed forms with the state of Illinois to change it to Emergent Light Studio. So I could have, uh, I could go to my bank and I'd show them that I was authorized to use this name and they say, okay, if a check comes in under Emergent Light Studio, that's your bank account. It's, you can do that. If you're interested, I can tell you how. It's not hard. Maybe cost about fifty bucks, something like that. Uh, but that's you can do that too. But it's still you. It's still you, even if you have an assumed name or a fictitious name, depending on what state you are. You're in. They call it different things. That's fine. It's a good thing. To, it's a good thing. And uh, you do have to fill out. You have to report your income. You fill out a. Um, your ordinary income from your W-2, but then you fill out an extra form called this, uh, you don't need to know this yet, but it's called the Schedule, um, um, Schedule C, and um, you just say, okay, I made this extra money, and I had these extra expenses, and this is how much net I made, and then that reports straight as a line on your 1040. 
Unfortunately, there's another form you report that profit to. That's called the Schedule SC, where they calculate your Social Security tax. And then that number goes to your, to your total taxes owed. So you get whacked twice on this. Uh, you get that becomes taxable income, and then there's the extra tax that you have to add on at the to your regular income tax, and it gets to be kind of a hurtful thing. And the IRS has gotten very aggressive in catching small these little small enterprises over the last ten years. I have found that I go to art shows um, and these big art shows, you've got a lot of mom and pop operations selling soy candles or whatever. And you get these people all coming in and looking at your stuff. And some of them just ask too many questions. You can tell they're field agents for the IRS trying to catch the non-reporters, the small businesses that are non-reporters. So you do have to watch it because they're getting more aggressive now. You know, us little small entrepreneurs are destroying the national treasury ruining our budget and all that but anyway okay so that's that's the game with the sole proprietorship now there's a little step up where you can get a couple of people together it's a little more of a formality you decide that you're going to do a business with this person now you have to understand that that means that you are both jointly and severally liable for anything that happens bad. So if he screws up, you have screwed up. What are you going to do about it? Well, aside from beat the shit out of him, you are stuck as much as he is. And if either of you dies, the partnership is dead. It's gone. Because it was nothing but two mortals. Just like the sole proprietorship. When he dies, well, I'm going to give this business to my, uh, to my uh, daughter. No, you're not. The business is dead. As soon as you're dead, the business is dead. Same thing, as soon as one of the partners in a partnership is dead, then the business is dead. And you're saying, now, wait a minute, fat boy. I've seen these partnership law firms where a partner dies and the partnership doesn't go away. That's because they formed it properly with the articles of formation, which you have to file with the state for a partnership. You have to, you can make it so that it folds up and becomes a new organ, a new partnership under the same name in the blink of an eye. But you have to form the partnership well to be able to pull that off. Okay? That's a partnership. Now, there's an intermediate form that I won't go through here with you because it's in the United States, it's being done so wrong and it just keeps the limited liability companies. Very briefly, limited liability companies are supposed to be limited in the liability. In other words, the company bears the liability of everything. But there are a couple of caveats on that. Membership, once the members have, they're called members, the owners of an LLC. Once the members are there, you can't really get rid of them or bring in new members, not without collapsing the whole thing and starting over. A cool thing about limited liability companies is that you can separate in owners into two types. One that gets the cash flows and the other that gets the proceeds at the closure of the LLC. And that's the key. LLCs are not supposed to go forever. They are supposed to be a project, and then when that project is over, you go on to uh, with your life. The LLC collapses. They are ideal, and I found them ideal back many years ago when I was in consulting, for certain types of entertainment projects where you could set up, okay, we're going to be the distributors of a movie, an indie movie. That's all we're going to do. We will distribute the movie for, let's say, two years, and then we'll spin it off on VHS and VCR, uh, VHS and beta. Yes, it's that old. And we will just give it over to a large retailer to deal with from there. So we'll get the distribution for a few years and then we'll walk away from it. Now there's a version of this called a limited partnership, which I did a number of, where you have one class of partners, general partners, 
they're paid salaries, they pay themselves big salaries, but then there's a limited partners. They put in the money and then they get the benefits of the free cash flows. The limited partners are not allowed to do any management whatsoever. They have to stay on the sidelines. To give you an idea of one that I did a couple of times with several um, entrepreneurial types, low-income housing for the elderly. There was a program the state and the feds were all, both supporting where if you raised a certain amount of money, they would match it, the state and the fed, either grants or, or zero-interest loans. Make nice housing. So the way we played it was this. Okay, we're going to sell units of this limited partnership, $50,000 each. We'll raise $5 million, and then the government, the state and federal government, will match it with $5, with $5 million more. And then we will also get a guarantee from the federal government and from the state that they will subsidize the housing, the rent, of old people. We'll build them for old people. Really nice painted walls, a nice kitchenette, and a, a community area, community and all that, and maybe some kind of lightweight uh, medical uh, nurse on duty some hours during the day. And we ran them. Three times I was involved in it. We made, we paid ourselves really, really good salaries, and then we would send the investors two documents, K-1. One would recognize the profit we had made for them, and the other would recognize the depreciation. Now, in both of those cases, those investors were getting negative numbers. Massive losses, massive on, on cash flow, massive losses on the um, depreciation. And they loved it because then they had those to write off against their real income. They were professionals, doctors, lawyers, dentists, architects, things like that. We would give them these for $50,000. They would get maybe five to seven years of huge losses that they would, that would take down what was their income that was taxable on their uh, 1040s. And they would call us, when are you going to do the next one? We love this. So in other words, it was a tax loss vehicle, and all we did, we didn't care. We made our money off the salary, and then at the end of the time, we would end the partnership. We would close it out and sell the, uh, the complex to some management, a real estate management company. So there you go. That's, partnerships can be cool. LLCs can be cool. Just don't abuse them. Finally, the ultimate, the corporation. Corporations, the perception often is that corporations are a pretty modern thing. A corporation separates the liabilities from the owner's equity. In other words, the corporation is a legal entity. It is fully recognized as a person under the laws of the United States. It is responsible for its own bills. It has no, uh, it, it, well, let me put it this way. The owners are just the owners. They can be partly the management, the board of directors, whatever, but they are not the corporation. 11 years no, 12 years ago uh, in February, I think February, February the 12th, I had a business 100 class and it was in the evening. And I went in and I said, I'm going with you watching and giving me a little help. I'm going to turn my sole proprietorship, Emergent Light Studio, into a corporation under Illinois law. Did it that in front of them. It was quite a kind of a rush for them too. But understand, first of all, corporations are state entities. They are not federal entities. They are formed in a state. So Emergent Light Studio, my company, is domestic in Illinois. It is foreign 
in all other states. So when I do a show in New York, I'm a foreign company doing a business operation in the state of New York or in Missouri or in some other place. It's a state entity. Now, the feds get involved in all kinds of ways, and I'll talk about that in a minute. But anyway, they, it was, they had just done, started it online. You could incorporate online. So I brought it up. Uh, it was in this building on the first floor. I remember distinctly over on the, um, that side, or on the south side. Uh, and uh, you fill out, well, what's the name of the corporation? What business? How many shares are authorized, which is hugely important. Because once you've authorized, let's say, a million shares, you cannot sell more than a million shares. That's it. That's your cap forever. So that's why you'll see, I, I, I learned my lesson, it, it's, a, it's a double-edged sword. But normally, in this one, it was going to be a private corporation. I was going to own the majority of shares, and then I might grant some shares uh, through a very carefully crafted private sale. But overall, it was going to be a private uh, private corporation. So I authorized a thousand shares, and I gave myself five hundred one of those shares. So I would have a majority, even if I sold all the other shares. Okay. So anyway, what? Okay. Where is its primary business operation? And then they want you to name the agent for the service of process and the address. So in other words, give them a name and an address so that if there's any legal paperwork of any kind, they know where to send it. And there were all these other uh, things. And then I said, I went through and I looked, okay, and I submitted it. And about, I, I thought, back in the old days with paper, six weeks. You filed the Articles of Incorporation on paper, triplicate, and the Secretary of State of the State of Incorporation looked at it, looked at it six weeks later. But this came back, I was actually shocked. Within 10 minutes, it came back qualified. Now, the government never approves anything. The term is qualified. In other words, you have met the minimum requirements for this. And so it was qualified. That was a birth certificate. It showed the number of my corporation. It was a, the Articles of Incorporation with, with qualified on it. That's a birth certificate, just like a child. But then you don't stop there because then you go to the federal government and you apply for an FEIN, a Federal Employer Identification Number. And there you go, I filed that. And it, it was kind of interesting because the FEIN, it said, what, bo what did you put in this box on your articles? What, what did you put here? Back and forth, just shuttling between the two. And I hit go, and it was 30 seconds, and I got an FEIN. That's a corporation's social security number. It is a like a child. It is under this. It it is fully recognized under the law as its own legal entity. It has a birth certificate, and it has a social security number. The birth certificate is the qualified articles of incorporation. The, the social security number is the federal employer identification number. So there you go. That is how you create a corporation. But just like a corporation, just like a child. The corporation must be stewarded. That would be the board of directors. They oversee the corporation on behalf of the shareholders. Their job is to maximize the wealth of the shareholders. That's all their job is. They are the parents of that little entity called a full corporation under U.S. law. And that's why the board of directors carries a major responsibility that I'll get to later in the course. It's called fiduciary responsibility, and it is not being taught these days, but it is the reality of it. So now you have a corporation, and it will live forever, theoretically. Because it's not like, Madam, you're going to, did you know you're going to die someday? I, it, it's true, and I mean, most people kind of think in their early years, you know, but someday you'll 
start getting old like I am, and then you'll bitch and fuss, and finally you'll die, and everyone will be happy. You're not fussing anymore. That's the reality of it. A corporation doesn't have that limit. Sure, corporations die all the time by their own stupidity or whatever, but they don't have to. That's why a major part of this course is going to see, going to be free cash flows. We've got to see forever out into the future and collapse those back to the present because the corporation is a going concern, as the uh, accountants call it. It will live forever. Unlike us, and we will all be dust at some point, but the companies that we create will go on. And that's why it is such a major responsibility to be a business person uh, in a developed country. We are living well past ourselves. What we do, as King Leonidas said, what we do in this life echoes in eternity. Don't ever forget that. That's all I have for you today. I thank you.